From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. My name is Justin Torres, and I'll be reading from my novel, We the Animals. I'm going to read the first couple chapters. We wanted more. We wanted more. We knocked the butt ends of our forks against the table, tapped our spoons against our empty bowls. We were hungry. We wanted more volume, more riots. We turned up the knob on the TV until our ears ached with the shouts of angry men. We wanted more music on the radio. We wanted beats. We wanted rock. We wanted muscles on our skinny arms. We had bird bones, hollow and light, and we wanted more density, more weight. We were six snatching hands, six stomping feet. We were brothers, boys, three little kings locked in a feud for more. When it was cold, we fought over blankets until the cloth tore down the middle. When it was really cold, when our breath came out in frosty clouds, Manny crawled into bed with Joel and me. Body heat, he said. Body heat, we agreed. We wanted more flesh, more blood, more warmth. When we fought, we fought with boots and garage tools, snapping pliers. We grabbed at whatever was nearest and we hurled it through the air. We wanted more broken dishes, more shattered glass. We wanted more crashes. And when our pops came home, we got spankings. Our little round butt cheeks were tore up, red, raw, leather whipped. We knew there was something on the other side of pain, on the other side of the sting. Prickly heat radiated upward from our thighs and backsides. Fire consumed our brains, but we knew there was something more, some place our pops was taking us with all this. We knew because he was meticulous, because he was precise, because he took his time. He was awakening us. He was leading us somewhere beyond burning and ripping, and you couldn't get there in a hurry. And when our father was gone, we wanted to be fathers. We hunted animals. We drudged through the muck of the creek, chasing down bullfrogs and water snakes. We plucked the baby robins from their nest. We liked to feel the beat of tiny hearts, the struggle of tiny wings. We brought their tiny animal faces close to ours. Who's your daddy, we said. Then we laughed and tossed them into a shoebox. Always more. Always hungrily scratching for more. But there were times, quiet moments, when our mother was sleeping, when she hadn't slept in two days, and any noise, any stair creak, any shut door, any stifled laugh, any voice at all, might wake her. Those still, crystal mornings, when we wanted to protect her, this confused goose of a woman, this stumbler, this gusher, with her backaches and headaches and her tired, tired ways, this uprooted Brooklyn creature, this tough talker, always with tears when she told us she loved us, her mixed-up love, her needy love, her warmth. Those mornings, when sunlight found the cracks in our blinds and laid itself down in crisp strips on the carpet, those quiet mornings when we'd fix ourselves oatmeal and sprawl onto our stomachs with crayons and paper, with glass marbles that we were careful not to rattle, when our mother was sleeping, when the air did not smell like sweat or breath or mold, when the air was still and light, those mornings when silence was our secret game and our gift and our sole accomplishment, we wanted less, less weight, less work, less noise, less father, less muscles and skin and hair. We wanted nothing, just this, just this.
Never Never Time. We all three sat in the kitchen table in our raincoats, and Joel smashed tomatoes with a small rubber mallet. We had seen it on TV, a man with an untamed mustache and a mallet slaughtering vegetables, and people in clear plastic ponchos soaking up the mess, having the time of their lives. We aimed to smile like that. We felt the pop and smack of tomato guts exploding. The guts dripped down the walls and landed on our cheeks and foreheads and congealed in our hair. When we ran out of tomatoes, we went into the bathroom and pulled out tubes of our mother's lotions from under the sink. We took off our raincoats and positioned ourselves so that when the mallet slammed down and forced out the white cream, it would get everywhere, the creases of our shut-tight eyes and the folds of our ears. Our mother came into the kitchen, pulling her robe shut and rubbing her eyes, saying, Man, oh man, what time is it? We told her it was 8.15, and she said, Crap, still keeping her eyes closed, just rubbing them harder. And then she said, Crap again, louder, and picked up the tea kettle and slammed it down on the stove and screamed, Why aren't you in school? It was 8.15 at night, and besides, it was a Sunday, but no one told Ma that. She worked graveyard shifts at the brewery up the hill from our house, and sometimes she got confused. She would wake randomly, mixed up, mistaking one day for another, one hour for the next, order us to brush our teeth and get into PJs and lie in bed in the middle of the day, or when we came into the kitchen in the morning, half asleep, she'd be pulling a meatloaf out of the oven, saying, What is wrong with you boys? I've been calling and calling for dinner. We had learned not to correct her or try to pull her out of the confusion. It only made things worse. Once, before we'd known better, Joel refused to go to the neighbors and ask for a stick of butter. It was nearly midnight, and she was baking a cake for Manny. My, you're crazy, Joel said. Everyone's sleeping, and it's not even his birthday. She studied the clock for a good while, shook her head quickly back and forth, and then focused on Joel. She bored deep into his eyes as if she was looking past his eyeballs into the lower part of his brain. Her mascara was all smudged, and her hair was stiff and thick, curling black around her face and matted down in the back. She looked like a raccoon, caught digging in the trash, surprised, dangerous. I hate my life, she said. That made Joel cry, and Manny punched him hard on the back of the head. Nice one, asswipe, he hissed. It was going to be my frickin' birthday. After that, we went along with whatever she came up with. We lived in dream time. Some nights Ma piled us into the car and drove out to the grocery store, the laundromat, the bank. We stood behind her, giggling, when she pulled at the locked doors, or when she shook the heavy security grating and cursed. She gasped now, finally noticing the tomato and lotion streaking down our faces. She opened her eyes wide and then squinted. She called us to her side and gently ran a finger across each of our cheeks, cutting through the grease and sludge. She gasped again. That's what you look like when you slid out of me, she whispered, just like that. We all groaned, but she kept on talking about it, about how slimy we were coming out about how Manny was born with a full head of hair and it shocked her. The first thing she did with each one of us was to count our fingers and toes. I wanted to make sure they hadn't left any in there, 
she said, and sent us into a fit of pretend barfing noises. Do it to me. What? we asked. Make me born. We're out of tomatoes, Manny said. Use ketchup. We gave her my raincoat because it was the cleanest, and we warned her, no matter what, not to open her eyes until we said it was okay. She got down on her knees and rested her chin on the table. Joel raised the mallet above his head, and Manny squared the neck of the ketchup bottle between her eyes. On the count of three, we said, and we each took a number. My number was last. We all took the deepest, longest breath we could, sucking the air through our teeth. Everyone had his face all clenched up, his hands squeezed into fists. We sucked in a little more air, and our chest swelled. The room felt like a balloon must when you're blowing and blowing and blowing right before it pops. Three, and the mallet swung through the air. Our mother yelled and slid to the floor and stayed there, her eyes wide open and ketchup everywhere, looking like she had been shot in the back of the head. It's a mom, we screamed. Congratulations. We ran to the cupboards and pulled out the biggest pots and heaviest ladles and clanged them as loud as we could, dancing around our mother's body, shouting, Happy birthday. Happy New Year. It's zero o'clock. It's never, never time. It's the time of your life. Seven. In the morning, we stood side by side in the doorway and looked in on Ma, who slept open mouth, and we listened to the air struggle to get past the saliva in her throat. Three days ago, she had arrived home with both cheeks swollen purple. Pops had carried her into the house and brought her to the bed, where he stroked her hair and whispered in her ear. He told us the dentist had been punching on her after she went under. He said that's how they loosen up the teeth before they ripped them out. Ma had been in bed every day since. Plastic vials of pain pills, glasses of water, half-drunk mugs of tea, and bloody tissues cluttered the floor around her bed. Pops had forbidden us to step foot in the bedroom, and for three mornings we had heated, moderating her breath from the doorway. But today we would not wait any longer. We tiptoed to her side and traced our fingers over her bruises. Mom murmured at our touch, but did not wake. It was the morning of my seventh birthday, which meant winter, but the light glowed in the curtain like spring. Manny walked to the window, pulled the curtain around him, and covered himself so that only his face was visible. One Sunday, because we had begged her to, Ma took us to a church service, and there we saw a painting of men in hoods with clasped hands and eyes lifted upward. Monks, Ma had said. They study God. Monks, Manny whispered now, and we understood. Joel draped himself in the sheet that had been kicked to the floor, and I grabbed the other curtain, and like monks we waited, except it was Ma we were studying, her black, tangled hair, her shut eyes, and her bloated jowl. We watched the tiny form of her under the covers, a twitch or kick, and the steady rise and fall of her chest. When she finally woke, she called us beautiful. My beautiful baby boys, she said, the first words out of her busted mouth in three days, and it was too much. We turned from her. I pressed my hand against the glass, suddenly embarrassed, needing the cold. That's how it sometimes was with Ma. 
I needed to press myself against something cold and hard, or I'd get dizzy. It's his birthday, Manny said. Happy birthday, Ma said, the words slightly tinged with pain. He's seven, Manny said. Ma nodded her head slowly and shut her eyes. He'll leave me, now he's seven. What's that supposed to mean, Joel asked. When you boys turned seven, you left me. Shut yourselves off from me. That's what big boys do, what seven-year-olds do. I moved both hands to the glass, caught the cold, and pressed it to my cheeks. I won't. They changed, Ma said, turning her head to me, wriggled away when I tried to cuddle them, wouldn't sit still on my lap. I had to let them go, had to harden my heart. They wanted to smash things, to wrestle. My brothers looked confused, but oddly proud. Manny winked to Joel. Ah, he said, it ain't like that. Isn't it? Ma asked. I don't want to smash nothing, I said. I want to study God and never get married. Good, Ma said. Then you'll stay six forever. That's just stupid, Joel said. Ma raised a slow hand for silence on the subject. Will you get up today? I asked. How do I look? Purple. I said, crazy, said Joel, tore up, said Manny. But it's your birthday, Ma said to me, but it's my birthday. She slid the covers down to her waist and brought her hands up to her face, delicately protecting her cheeks, as if a hand might fly through the air at any moment. Then she raised herself up, then her feet were on the floor, then she was standing in her green football jersey with bare legs thin as anything and painted toes. A brass-handled mirror lay on the bureau, and as soon as Ma raised it to her face, tears came and sat on her eyelids, waiting to fall. Ma could hold tears on her eyelids longer than anyone. Some days she walked around like that for hours, holding them there, not letting them drop. On those days she would trace her finger over the shapes of things, or hold her telephone on her lap, silent, and you had to call her name three times before she'd give you her eyes. Now, Ma held the tears and studied her ugliness. The three of us boys started to back out of the room, but she called for me, said she wanted to talk to me about staying six, but she didn't say much beyond that, just looked and looked in that mirror, turning her jaw at different angles. What did he do to me? she asked. He punched you in the face, I said, to loosen up your teeth. I jumped at the sound of shattering glass. My brother's two heads instantly appeared back in the doorway, smiling wide, running their eyes from Ma to me, to the broken pieces of mirror, to the spot on the wall where it had been flung, to Ma, to me. Ma's hands were up protecting her cheeks again, and her eyes were shut. When she spoke, she said each word slow and clear. You think it's funny when men beat on your mother. My brother's smiles dropped to frowns. They disappeared again. I went and wrapped myself back up in the curtain, leaned my forehead against the window pane. The light reflected back and forth from the white sky to the snow, the light caught in the frost on the window. Outside, it was too bright to focus on any one spot. I opened my eyes as wide as I could, and they burned with light, and I thought about going blind, about how everyone said if you looked right up into the sun, full on, and held your gaze, you'd go blind. 
but when I tried, I could not blind myself. Ma sat on the edge of the bed, breathing loud and slow, forgiving me. She called for me to sit on her lap, and I came, and we breathed together. Then Ma started in on my favorite song, about a woman with feathers and oranges, and Jesus Christ walking on the water. My head stretched all the way up to her shoulder, but she rocked me, rocked me, and hummed the words she had forgotten. Promise me, she said. Promise me you'll stay six forever. How? Simple. You're not seven, you're six plus one. And next year you'll be six plus two, like that, forever. Why? When they ask how old you are, and you say I'm six plus one, or two, or more, you'll be telling them that no matter how old you are, you are your ma's baby boy. And if you stay my baby boy, then I will always have you, and you won't shy away from me, won't get slick and tough, and I won't have to harden my heart. You stop loving them when they turn seven? Don't be simple, Ma said. She brushed my hair back from my forehead. Loving big boys is different from loving little boys. You've got to meet tough with tough. It makes me tired sometimes, that's all. And you, I don't want you to leave me. I'm not ready. Then Ma leaned in and whispered more in my ear, told me more about why she needed me six. She whispered it all to me, her need so big, no softness anywhere, only pops and boys turning into pops. It wasn't just the cooing words, but the damp of her voice, the tinge of pain. It was the warm closeness of her bruises that sparked me. I turned into her, saw the swollen mounds on either side of her face, the muddied purple skin ringed in yellow. Those bruises looked so sensitive, so soft, so capable of hurt, and this thrill, this spark, surged from my gut, spread through my chest, this wicked tingle, down the length of my arms and into my hands. I grabbed hold of both of her cheeks and pulled her toward me for a kiss. The pain traveled sharp and fast to her eyes. Pain opened up her pupils into big black discs. She ripped her face from mine and shoved me away from her to the floor. She cussed me and Jesus, and the tears dropped, and I was seven. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.